1: If you enjoy this podcast, I would really appreciate your rating it on either Apple Podcasts, or if you do not listen there, on Podchaser. Ratings really help the podcast find new listeners and grow, so thank you for taking the time to do so. Today, I am interviewing Julie Metz about Ava and Eve. Julie is the New York Times bestselling author of the memoir, Perfection. She has written for publications including the New York Times, Salon, Tablet, Dame, and Catapult. Her essays have appeared in the anthologies The Moment and The House That Made Me. Born and raised in New York City, Julie now lives with her family in the Hudson Valley. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Before we get started, I am really excited to tell you about my latest sponsor, The Young Center, here in Houston. The Young Center is delighted to present author and producer Delia Efron on October 5th at their 2021 fall benefit who's in your inbox, Delia Efron talks about life, change, and the relationships that matter. You know Delia's work. With her sister Nora, she co-wrote You've Got Mail and co-produced Sleepless in Seattle. Delia's newest book, coming out in April, is Left on Fifth, A Second Chance at Life. In it, she describes her story of falling in love after the death of her husband and sister, being diagnosed with cancer, and living through it all with humor and grace. To register, go to younghouston.org and click on Delia Efron. I've included a link in the show notes. You will get $10 off your ticket when you write thoughts from a page in the notes. I am personally planning to attend online and I hope to see you there as well. Welcome, Julie. How are you today?
0: I'm great. Thank you so much for having me.
1: I'm so excited to have you. I really, really enjoyed reading Ava and Eve, and I'm looking forward to talking with you about it. That's great. Well, before we start out, why don't you just give a quick synopsis of what the book is about for somebody that hasn't read it.
0: Yes, so Ava and Eve tells the story of how my mother's Jewish family escaped from Nazi-occupied Vienna in 1940. And this happened in a time not so different from now. It was the previous era of America First, when restrictive immigration laws stranded millions of Jews in Europe. The book moves between the past and the present and follows my research journey recreating the last years of a golden age of Jewish culture in Vienna, and then focusing on one family's escape and reinventions as newcomers
1: to America. Well, you talk about this in your book, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about it. You knew your mother was born in Vienna and lived there until she came to the United States, correct? hmm But you did not know about the two years that she spent under occupation? I mean, how did all of that work? You, you discovered a book. That you didn't know about until after she passed away. So tell me how the whole story unfolded for you.
0: Yes. So, shortly after my mother died, my father asked me and my sister in law to start packing up my mom's clothing. And we were doing that. And I was looking through the back of one of her drawers. And way, way in the back of the drawer, I pulled out this book. It was a little keepsake book. At the time, I had no idea what it was, I'd certainly never seen it before. I pulled it out and I showed it to my dad. And asked him if he'd ever seen it. And he said he'd never had, not once in all the decades of their marriage, which was over 50 years together. So this was a secret thing that she had kept hidden away. And what it turned out to be is in German, it's called a poesy album, which would basically translate to a poesy book. And it was a very wildly popular sort of keepsake book that children got. And, you know, you got your friends to put drawings in it or write their names or copy out poems and things of that sort. But these books, there are many of them now in archives. These were often the only thing that children were able to bring with them when they came to the United States. And so my mom had hers, but she never shared it with any of us. So once I found this book, it moved me in ways I couldn't quite express at the time. But what I understood is that my mother had been holding a lot of secrets and that this book had, in a way, been holding a lot of pain from her experience as a child in Nazi-occupied Vienna, and that she hadn't ever felt able to speak about even with her family members. So I started Doing the research at first, I didn't really know what I was looking for or what I'd be able to find. But in the end, I connected with a research institute in New York where I was living at the time, and um, they guided me towards how to do research. I wasn't a trained historian by any means. Through their help, I was able to research and recreate this world of the Jews in Vienna prior to the onset of the war.
1: So what did you know about your mom's history in terms of that she was born in Vienna but ended up in the United States? What had she told you?
0: She told us, you know, me and my brother, she would tell us a few stories. They were always the same stories, and she tended to tell them the same way. And I won't say that she rehearsed it or had learned those stories by heart, but I think what may have happened is that there was so much pain and anguish associated with this time in her life that she had found a way to tell a few stories in a way that she could bear. And that was it. And you sort of understood that that was what you were going to get. So that's what we knew. And then after she died, when I started investigating, what I found were a lot of things that had been there in plain sight all the time. There were family photo albums that I had never really looked through completely. And out came all kinds of photographs and documents. She had saved the German passports that the family traveled on. So I had those as a way of creating a timeline. So all these things kind of filtered out after she died.
1: And I was so fascinated by the idea that her brothers had gone on to London and she had stayed with her parents for those couple of years. I would assume after reading your book and thinking through that time period in Austria, she probably was very scarred by what happened during those years.
0: For sure. I think that, you know, if you had met my mom, you would understand she was a very tough and determined person for all of her life, and especially in our relationship as mother and daughter. I think that this determination was what prompted her to insist on staying behind with her parents, even though, of course, it would have been much safer for her to go with her brothers off to London. But she insisted on staying behind. And when I asked my dad about it, he told me that, in fact, she really had insisted um, and would not take no for an answer. She felt that her parents needed her to stay with them as a comfort. But of course, she was a very young child. And without a doubt, she witnessed horrible things that were happening in Vienna at the time, people being forced to scrub sidewalks, people being beaten, all kinds of stuff that was going on in Vienna for those two years, not to mention the privation of rationing and food shortages and everything that made daily life just excruciating for the Jews who were trying to get out.
1: Right. And the loss of her father's business. I mean, just all of it. It's hard to fathom that now, even though I've read so many different stories to actually think about the fact that some of those things happened, I still find it just really almost impossible to fathom myself.
0: And you know, when I've gone to Vienna on two research trips, I've had exactly this same feeling. I walk down these streets of this incredibly beautiful city, and it's just impossible to imagine that this was all happening on these very safe, quiet streets that people were being Abused and beaten, and you know, and chased out of their homes, and having all their businesses taken away from them. You know, it's just uh, sometimes you you wonder how we would experience that if it were to happen here. We feel so insulated from something like that, but of course, the answer is that it could happen.
1: Exactly, and I'm sure they felt so insulated until it all happened. I was amazed that your mom was able to go back to Vienna at all. I know you talk about how she never got anywhere near her neighborhood which I fully understood. But I i don't know that I could go back at all. I would be so frustrated and angry with the Austrian government and, you know, everybody who participated in that terrible behavior.
0: Yeah. The first time I went home, you know, back to see her home, the, the first time I went to Vienna, I did have very much that feeling that I couldn't believe that she had managed to go back. At the same time, what had been very comforting on that very first trip that I made as a college student was to find that a Jewish man was actually living in her apartment. And when I found that out, I did encourage her to consider going back. I thought it might be sort of healing to see her apartment again and her neighborhood now that it was safely in the hands of a, of a Jewish owner. But she never was able to do that. And of course, I completely understand. I think she remained very angry and very bitter till the end of her life because of everything that had been taken from her, including really the the feeling of any kind of safety in her childhood.
1: Absolutely. I think that living through something like that would completely rob you of any feeling of safety and always be worried that something new could happen that you don't expect.
0: Mm-hmm. I think that's um, something that a lot of Jewish refugees, and of course, refugees from every other part of the world where there's been war and torture and persecution. People come here to reinvent their lives, but you bring a lot with you. And a lot of what I wanted to explore in the book was just that, that you bring that with you, and that sometimes it takes a few generations to kind of work through that.
1: What about your research? I know you said you hooked up with a group in New York City, but tell me about the research, and I love that you included all of those photos in your book. I've pored over them several times.
0: Yeah, the institute, it's called the Leo Beck Institute, and they are an institution that does research on German-speaking Jewry. It's part of the Center for Jewish History located in Manhattan. And I ended up working with one archivist. We spoke maybe not every day, but almost every day for a long time while I was doing the research. And then he would sort of send me off to with certain reading, certain people to contact around the country here in the United States, and of course also in Austria. And then once I was on my way, I felt more confident and started to make my own connections through other universities and institutions in Austria. Then, of course, there was also just dumb luck. So I I do feel that sometimes if you just keep. Pushing hard, eventually something will happen that just feels like serendipity. Although I also think you kind of make your own luck in these circumstances. So I did actually meet a person who is the current occupant of the space that was once my grandfather's printing factory. And once he and I connected via the internet, then a whole world opened up for me because he was willing to do a lot of research on my behalf since I don't speak German. And he also made it a a mission to hunt down this mysterious paper fan that my mother had described to us often when I was a kid. And this paper fan was a item of packaging that his factory produced. It was the way that medicine was dosed prior to pills coming into more common use. So it's hard to describe in an audio setting. But If you could imagine a little folded paper packet and then on one end is an opening and the pharmacist would hold out this fan and introduce the doses into those little pouches and then seal them up. And this was an early way of packaging medicine in an antiseptic form. And when the Nazis came in, they decided that this little humble paper item was important enough that they kept my grandfather around at the factory. To run this machine, even though they had already stolen the business from him. So that little paper fan sort of kept him alive.
1: Kind of incredible to think about something like that that just ended up saving his life.
0: Yeah. I think that, you know, I'm very intrigued always by things like this, the small details, you know, chance encounters. In the end, of course, one of the important parts of the way that they got out was they had to get an American visa and this was very very difficult at that time because of those restrictive quotas so i knew that there was a you know someone at the american consulate gave them a visa and they weren't exactly ideal immigrant material because my grandfather was already 65 by then and not in the best health my grandmother hadn't worked since she married and my mother was too young to work but somehow they managed to get that visa and i always wondered what had made the difference and a lot of my research focused on the common passion that my grandfather and this man, this vice consul at the American consulate in Vienna, that they shared, which turned out to be mountain climbing. And this was something, of course, that was very common in Austria, but it's not so common here. So when I found that connection, that they both were such avid mountaineers, I felt that I, I could sort of feel all the, the hairs on the back of my neck prickling. When I made that connection, it just seemed like there was something there for me to pursue.
1: It's always so interesting, those connections, you know, the circumstances and the luck of when you just show up and, you know, that your grandfather ended up able to talk to the person who shared the same interest with him. You know, just think if he'd showed up at a different time or been assigned to a different person.
0: Yeah. And I think what I found out when I talked to my contact at the Leo Beck Institute is that, like everything else in life, The way people got those appointments at the consulate was there was someone who knew someone. So often you were getting an appointment because someone knew that there was a a kind of sympathetic person at the consulate. So I'm even thinking that it's possible that a friend intervened, you know, a non-Jewish friend intervened to arrange this appointment, knowing that there was something that connected them. But then you think, you know, you go to your appointment, it's 15 minutes that, you know, is going to be extremely important and vital in your life. It might save your life or it might not. I just always wondered in my mind what might have happened in those few minutes that my grandfather and grandmother spent in his office. So that was a work of the imagination to recreate that sort of hypothetical meeting.
1: Right. What they talked about, how it all came about, and how they were able to then leave Austria. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, did you stumble on anything in your research that didn't make it into the book?
0: Yes, lots. There were so many stories because I, I listened to a lot of other interviews with other people who got out. And just because I wanted to understand sort of what other acts of good fortune and small acts of kindness made all the difference for other families who managed to escape. And there were so many stories that I thought, oh gosh, at some point, I'm going to want to do something with these stories. So that's kind of what I'm doing now. But yes, there was so much material. What's really fascinating is that all these years later, uh, there are so many historians that are still studying this period in such great detail, and all of them that uh, I contacted. They were so incredibly generous with their time and information. That was really one of the most gratifying parts of writing this book.
1: Well, and you speak a little bit about that in the book, but that some people are almost pursuing some of these issues for restitution for themselves or as a way to pay back, I think, what they feel was such a wrong, either by their family or by their country or by whomever.
0: Yes, exactly. Um, most of the people that I contacted were not Jewish. They they are doing it, in fact, as a as a kind of uh, compensation. You know, a kind of way of exactly how you described it, a way of restoration. And um, they feel responsible in some way for that. You know, that these stories must be told. So they're continuing to research so many different aspects of daily life, which was, of course, what I was very interested in, was how did people survive? How did they get out? And, and then what became of people once they arrived in the United States?
1: I was amazed that you talk about Austria and how long it took them to acknowledge the, the whole process and what happened to Jews and take responsibility.
0: Yes, it's a sort of undercovered story. Germany, of course, was very different experience after the war. Well, there was the Marshall Plan, and then I think the German government began a, literally a kind of re-education program. The people I know who are German have grown up learning about the Holocaust in school. But the Austrian government took it's a much more conservative country and they took a very different approach. and it really took decades. For them to even acknowledge that, in fact, there had been you know support that the Austrian government and the Austrian people had embraced Hitler and had supported what was going on. So this meant that um, people had a very difficult time getting restitution of any sort, financial or otherwise, or even acknowledgement for the suffering that they'd experienced. Um, my mother, in fact, spent many years doing battle with the Austrian government. To get a pension. So, all I'll tell you is that she won. <laughs> and uh, she was very tough. And I did actually write a story about this because it was, it sort of amazed me once again to know just how incredibly tough she was and how determined and resilient she was just going to get that pension. And that's all there was
1: to it. And that's amazing that she was able to get it. That's fabulous.
0: Yes. So, it you know, I think it, was, it wasn't so much about the money or how much it was. I really, I believe, was mostly about the principle of forcing the Austrian government to acknowledge its responsibility and that giving her the pension was the sign of them accepting that, in fact, these things had occurred and that they owed something to her and her family.
1: Absolutely. Just at least some acknowledgement that this was all very wrong and should have been should have never happened and then obviously should have been handled differently when it did happen.
0: And then what's also interesting is that I wrote about it a little bit toward the end of the book, is that now the Austrian government has finally changed its citizenship laws in a way that would permit descendants, people like me and my brother and also my child, to apply for Austrian citizenship. So I'm in the process of doing that now with my brother and then my child can apply whenever they're ready to do that. And this I feel is also a very important it's an act of restitution. I feel it's a way of reclaiming my my ancestry by having that government acknowledge that, you know, I'm part Austrian and that this was my heritage and that I want to reclaim it.
1: That's so interesting. And that's interesting that you, you know, that you do want to become an Austrian citizen. And I guess they have dual citizenship with the U.S.?
0: Yes, it would be dual citizenship. So I don't have to give up my American citizenship, which I never would want to do. I'm an American. I feel fully American. But it's part of my, you know, it's part of my heritage. And I would really like to reclaim that. Honestly, my brother and I, I don't know what, What we would think our mother would have said about that, maybe she wouldn't have have liked that idea at all. But for my brother and me, I think it feels like that, just an act of reclamation.
1: Well, and as you said, sometimes it takes a couple of generations for those things to change and people to feel differently. And she might not have liked it, but she also lived through it. And it's a nice way for you, as you said, to reclaim your heritage. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I love, love, love to talk about book covers. So the thing that caught my attention very early on in your book is that both of your parents worked at Simon & Schuster in book design, correct?
0: Yes. So I come from a publishing family. My father was the art director for trade jackets for about 35 years at Simon & Schuster. And my mother was the art director for the interiors of the trade books for about 34 years. And this meant that basically every Simon and Schuster trade book for a very long time really had their aesthetic <laughs> guidance in you know, in the way that they looked and were designed. Of course, then it turns out that I went into the publishing business too. So I've been a book cover designer for very many years. I did not I designed the cover of my first book, but I didn't design this cover. I will say that I adore this cover for Ava and Eve. And what was really interesting to me is that the designer who who created this cover, she never saw the little keepsake book that I describe, except in a small photo, but somehow she nailed it. And I just love looking at it. It really feels just right for this book.
1: Well, it's a stunning cover. I absolutely love it. But think about the pressure for the person designing it. Both of your parents worked for a very long time at Simon & Schuster in cover design, and then you also work in cover design. I would think that would have been very daunting for that person.
0: Well, I don't know. She seemed um, very even-keeled about it. And, you know, when they presented this design to me, I, I think I had two tiny quibbles with something very far in the background. But of course, you know, it's all about the little details. But otherwise, I just thought it was stunning. And what I love about it is that There's something old and something new, you know, that the cover feels modern and yet it nods to the past. And that's really what I was hoping that this cover would be. And I was also hoping that that's what this book would be, that it would look to the past of a very dark time and also give it a modern context for our time.
1: Well, I think it definitely does that. What do you do for cover design?
0: So I, a, I've am. been a freelancer for very many years and I also serve as an art director for two small imprints. And uh, so I do all those things in addition to writing books.
1: That's so interesting because truly cover design is one of my favorite things to talk about. I don't think people realize how important a cover is always and also just how much goes into it.
0: They definitely, uh, yeah, I think a beautiful cover design, what I always feel is that A beautiful cover probably won't help a book that's no good, but a a bad cover design could really damage a good book. And so there is a mission that you're really trying to help a book find its readers and with, you know, in the way that it's packaged. And that really is crucial. It's more crucial than ever because most of us now are buying books you know, from a one inch icon on Amazon or Hope or bookshop.org or wherever or your own bookstore, we're, we're looking at it very, very small, so it really has to make an impact.:
1: I think that's right. And I do think you're exactly right that a bad cover can sink a book, because there have been several times where I just couldn't abide a cover and so I didn't pick up the book. So I think it does make a very big difference. And I also don't like when they don't match up. So when you have a book, that's a great book and a cover that's beautiful but they don't they don't go together and that's a very big frustration for me and I think that also can really detract from book sales.
0: Yeah, I think there's a lot of cues that a good cover signals to potential readers about what they're going to find inside and that really is so much the mission of, you know, being a cover designer is you you want to serve the book. You you know, it's not about You and your designer ego—it's you're trying to do your very best to serve the book itself.
1: No, I think that's right. And just sometimes, you know, you might have an idea for how you think it should look, but if it doesn't match up with what's happening in the story, then you're going to probably frustrate the readers.
0: Yes. So it's a very—I mean, I think of it as a very important part of book, you know, book selling and and how books find find their market. And it's so important now. I think we're also very used to all things being packaged. So I think books being packaged beautifully for a certain market is very,
1: very important. I agree with that completely. Well, I have thoroughly loved talking about Ava and Eve. And before we wrap up, I would love to hear what you've read recently that you really liked.
0: Yes. So right now, I am reading a novel called Great Circle by Maggie Shipstead, and I'm really enjoying it. It's a sort of sprawling, epic novel um, about an aviatrix, a woman who was a flyer, fictional character. But it's really beautifully written, and uh, I would highly recommend that. But I've also been reading other books to set up for research that I'm going to be doing for a new project. So I'm back to reading books about Vienna during the war. Some of them are maybe more academic titles. The other books that I've been reading, I've been reading George Saunders' recent book that uh, is just wonderful. And then I'm reading a book about the artist, uh, her name was uh, Tovid Janssen. She created the, the Momin characters and their aspects of her life that I find very inspiring for a project that I'm working on. That's kind of, I guess, what I've been reading lately.
1: I Have Great Circle but I just haven't had the time to pick up a book that's that long right now. So at some point I hope to get to it. I keep hearing such good things.
0: Yeah, it's one of those books where the the thickness is a bit daunting, but when you open it up and get through the first 20 pages, you'll, you'll be hooked, I'm quite sure.
1: That's what I keep hearing. Well, Julie, thank you so much for joining me on the Thoughts from a Page podcast today. I very much enjoyed speaking with you. Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please consider joining my Patreon as a page turner. Follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From a Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed today can be purchased at the Conversations From a Page bookshop storefront and the link is in the show notes. Thanks so much to my sponsors, The Young Center Houston and Maggie Garza of HTX Real Estate Group. They really helped me continue to produce this podcast. I hope you'll tune in next time.
0: Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school?